I'm supposed to be at a funeral at Beecher Island in two hours, and I'm in Boulder. Can you do the funeral? And so my wife drove to Yuma and picked me up and drove me to Beecher, and I did a funeral. Uh, Steve did give me a little more time than that, though. I'm afraid I waited till last night to think about what I'd say today, so I apologize. Let's pray before we have, before we have a message. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for gathering us today here as your people, uh, people who are called by your name, who are um, made a people by the work of Jesus on the cross, and who have hope for the future because of his resurrection. And we would ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts and would help us to be responsive to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this won't be as much a sermon as it will be just um, a reflection on some of the things I'm thinking about in my life at this point. Uh, I think a sermon tends to be fundamentally a proclamation of God's word uh, applied by the Holy Spirit, uh, a proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And, And I hope that this message will include that. But again, it's very much a personal reflection. I start with that caveat. Um, I have been, and this is going to make some of you nervous, but let me just say this. I have been for quite some time participating in a Bible study, a study group with some folks at the Catholic church here in town. And it has been very, very rewarding, something I've enjoyed learning about uh, the Catholic Church, and, and more specifically getting to know uh, some Catholic brothers and sisters uh, here in Ray. Now that makes some of you nervous, I know, I know. Um, but let me just tell you, they love God, okay? They believe the Bible is God's word, they know their Bibles, and they're looking to the death and resurrection of Jesus for their salvation, Um, In fact, today, Reese is going to talk in the adult Sunday school class about the person of Jesus, that we believe Jesus is fully God and yet has taken to himself humanity. He's fully God and fully man, and because of that, he's able to save us. And you know, we share that belief 100% with our Catholic brothers and sisters. To some extent, we, we receive that theological and doctrinal position from them. And so there's a lot of agreement, a lot of agreement on doctrine, a lot of agreement on culture and social issues. There's a lot in common. But there's an awkwardness. And uh, it doesn't bother me when I go to this this Catholic study. And again, I just want to say I love these folks. We're so fortunate to have such good um, Catholic brothers and sisters and Ray, and they're very loving, and, and they actually pressed me to participate. Um, and so the awkwardness doesn't bother me. I, I realize for some of you it would be too uncomfortable. But there's an awkwardness, right? Does, do some of you have Catholic friends or family? Of course you do. I mean, and we all know, because there's just so many wonderful Catholics in Ray. So there's just, but there's an awkwardness when we talk about matters of faith, right? Even if it's not spoken. And kind of the unspoken awkwardness is, why are we here and not there? Why are we not there with them at church? Who's right and who's wrong and what's the difference? 
And if we're honest, the question is made really complicated by the fact that there isn't a great deal of unity among Protestant churches. So who's right and who's wrong? Catholics, Protestants. Well, which Protestants, right? Lutherans, Methodists, Nazarenes, Baptists, Christian, non-denominational. So there's an awkwardness there. There's an awkwardness. But I think it's healthy, and I've enjoyed this time of dialoguing uh, with Catholics because it helps point out areas in my own life, my own faith, my own belief that maybe are, are problematic. We don't often realize some of the things we see as normal are not normal until we encounter someone who thinks very differently. And one thing that's very problematic for us as Protestants is we think about the Christian faith in very private and individualistic terms, right? It's my personal relationship with Jesus. It's me and Jesus. And we don't have a real good sense of how the church community plays into that. And when folks disagree, when you and I can't see eye to eye on what the Bible says or how we should do church, what happens? We, we leave. We, we go to another church. We stop going to church altogether. Because, well, after all, it's, it's not that important. And so that's the big weakness for us here as Protestants, as part of the Christian church, is there's a danger for us that if we can't come to some Agreement. If we can't get on the same page, well, we'll just walk away and go do our thing. How many, how many churches are in Ray? Does anybody know? Ten churches in Ray? Yeah, I think there's about closer to 15 or 16, or at least it used to be. How many Catholic churches? Hmm. So I guess if anybody has a strong argument of being in connection with the historic and even the early church, the one that has probably at least the, on the surface the strongest, strongest argument would be the Catholic church, right? Because of the Protestants, which 12 of us has the best argument? Now, don't miss it. Some of you are getting really nervous. Where am I going? One thing that I struggle with a lot is um, the unity of the church. Is that important? And what does it require of us? If you have your Bibles, look at John 17 quickly with me. John chapter 17. And look at just verses 20 through 23. And this passage has always just kind of haunted me. Jesus is praying, and he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So I'm not just praying for my disciples, the 12 disciples, but I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their teaching and their preaching of the gospel, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. So Jesus is here praying for the unity, really, of all his followers, right? Do you disagree with that? Well, what does that mean? Well, as Protestants, and for good reason, we've said, well, there is a fundamental unity of all Christians. Everyone who's truly looking to Jesus Christ in faith, relying upon his work, uh, they are part of Christ's body, the church, universal. There's a spiritual unity that maybe is not always something you can see, but it's there. And I think that's true. That's true. But notice, it's interesting, Jesus points to this unity as, uh, as helping the world see the truth of the gospel. So somehow this unity has to become visible, it has to become physical, it has to get worked out. John's, Jesus says in John 13, By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's a, there's a sense where our unity as Christians is an important part of our witness to the world. And when the unity of the church is broken, that witness is weakened. Now that's a big challenge, isn't it? Should we just all close up shop and meet in one place? I'm not saying that, but I think there is a a time for all of us to say, hey, why am I here today as opposed to somewhere else? Why am I here at First Christian Church and not at Catholic Mass? I mean, this year, 2017, is the 500th year, you know, of the... Reformation. We remember the Reformation, which um, fifteen seventeen is seen as kind of the start of the Reformation. So five hundred years. But our presence here is still, in some ways, an act of protest. We're still saying, by coming here, uh, we're not there, and here's why. There's a reason, and it's important. There's a reason that 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 the visible unity of the church has, to some extent, be, been sacrificed. We think it's that important. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of differences between Catholics and Protestants, and I don't know if that would be entirely helpful. These kinds of conversations come up in our Sunday school class, um, and I'd invite you to participate with us if you're able to. But what I want to consider this morning is just one thing, one area and it's something that's been at the back of my mind every time I go to uh, this study at the Catholic Church. And that is the nature of salvation and specifically justification. What is justification? It's a big theological term, but it's, it's very important because, at least historically, it's been the primary distinction between Catholics and Protestants. How are we justified before God? How do we become right with God? Now, the purpose of what I'm going to say here is not to criticize the Catholic Church. And if you leave this church and you say something negative about the Catholic Church and then blame it on me, you're going to be in big trouble. 
Okay, because I'm not, because that's really not the plan or the goal. Uh, my primary c- concern is to challenge and, and call us back to the truths of the Reformation that brought about this uh, separation in the church. So if, if I'm going to criticize anyone, I'm going to criticize myself and I'm going to criticize us, not, uh, not anyone outside of here. So please don't misunderstand me. Do we still need the Reformation 500 years ago? And I'll tell you what, the Reformation's fallen on hard times in Protestant circles. Lots of Christians obviously don't know anything that or don't know much about the reformation martin luther john calvin why do these guys matter that's understandable but there's also lots of scholarly people today in the protestant world that say you know that reformers were all wrong they they were just products of their culture as if we're not all to some extent products of our culture but you know they were wrong on this they're wrong on that okay it, but was there something there that was right or not? And if not, my challenge to all these scholars is, if not, go back. Go back to Rome. Stop dividing the church if there's nothing of substance to divide us. But they're not willing to do that. I mean, at some point in, in Christian faith and life, there comes a time when you have to articulate what is at the center. What's at the core what are the things we can't sacrifice? And are there things there? And I believe there are. And there are some differences. And specifically, I want to look at justification today. As Steve pointed out in his meditation before communion, uh, justification is not simply, how do I go to heaven when I die? But justification is, how do I enter the kingdom? If God's the king and he has a kingdom What's the difference between being in and being out? And I think you could say the Bible says justification is the transition from being outside the kingdom to being in the kingdom, to being a participant of the kingdom. Now, if you look back at the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, you need to understand that the church did believe that God saved people by his grace. When, when Protestants say, well, Catholics don't believe in grace, that's not, that's not fair or accurate. The church has always emphasized that salvation comes to us um, by God's grace. The, the big difference is always how do we access that grace and what does that grace do? And the medieval church said that by our free will and effort, we we need to cooperate with that grace, and that is our part in salvation. The popular phrase in the medieval church was, God will, do not, will do not, I'm sorry, God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. Let's put it in 21st century American language. God helps those who help themselves. You know, God's grace is there, so if you go a little bit, it'll help you, and you you just keep cooperating and keep progressing. God helps those who help themselves. But is that the gospel? Is that the heart of how we become right with God? And I hope we recognize, well, no. The medieval church also viewed grace more as a substance than as an attitude of favor of God towards us. In other words, grace was like this stuff. Uh, it's like water 
that God pours into us. It assists us in our growth towards salvation. The purpose of grace is to transform a sinner into a saint, a bad person into a good person, a rebel into an obedient child. Now, I don't completely disagree with that. I do think that's what grace does. Uh, But is that primarily what grace is? And the reformers, in response to this medieval church, said, no, grace is primarily uh, uh, an attitude, a, a posture of God towards us, where God shows his love and favor towards us, even though we are undeserving of it. And a, an important question comes up in this kind of medieval, and, and I'm using the term medieval church because in all truth, uh, the Catholic church in its official teaching has has changed over the last 500 years. And there's not as much separation, but there still is on this point. There still is important separation. And if my salvation is dependent upon my cooperation, how can I know if I've ever done enough? If, if being right with God is dependent upon me doing certain things, how do I know if I've done enough? It's a fair question, isn't it? If forgiveness of sin comes through confession of sin, how do I know that I've confessed every sin? Maybe I missed one. And if you know anything about the life of Martin Luther, who I guess you could say was an Augustinian monk with an overactive conscience, this was entirely his problem. How do I know that I've done enough uh, to access, not, necess- even, not even necessarily earn, but at least access God's grace. How do I know that I've confessed all my sins? I-, I might have missed one. And one time his superior, who he would go and spend hours confessing to, said, Brother Martin, get out of here and don't come back until you have a serious sin to confess. Go kill your parents or commit adultery and then come back. Stop bothering me with all these trivial sins. But in, in one sense, Martin Luther was right that he sensed that all sin is not trivial. No, no sin is trivial. That it's serious. That it, that it puts this separation between us and God, and it's a problem. And he at least understood that clearly. And so we often look at Martin Luther, not because he had everything figured out, and Lord knows he had a lot of things uh, that were problematic about his, both his thinking and his life, But his progress in coming to understand the gospel, I think, is helpful in how it illustrates some important truths. If you have your Bibles, look at Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, verse 17. Romans 1, verse 17 was an important verse for Martin Luther. And here's the issue. Well, let's go back to verse 16. Let's read verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Luther's problem at first was, he knows the word gospel means good news. And he's looking at this and saying, how is the righteousness of God good news? For Luther, the righteousness of God condemns me because he is righteous and I'm not. 
How can the righteousness of God be good news? And as he wrestled with this and wrestled with this, he had kind of this breakthrough. It certainly happened over time. But he came to see that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is not, is not focusing on a quality of God. God is righteous. Yes, that's true. He's perfect. He's holy. But the righteousness of God is something that is a gift from God to us. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a gift that God gives to us so that we might be righteous acceptable and pleasing before him. So that was his first step. Okay, righteousness of God, it's not just something that condemns me. It, it, it's a gift that is given to me. Well, how do, I, how do I receive that gift? Look at Romans 3 with me. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been, and again, if, if when Luther would first read this, he's like, I hate the righteousness of God because it, all it does is condemns me. But then he realizes, no, it's a gift from God to us. So verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a dense passage, and I I don't have time to unpack everything there. But the second step for Luther is um, that there is an external righteousness that is not ours by nature, but that is given to us, and it is nothing less than the righteousness of Jesus. And so the reformers used this term, alien righteousness. And it wasn't because it was from outer space. They called it alien righteousness because it wasn't ours. It wasn't ours by nature. The righteousness of Jesus becomes ours, even though it's foreign to us. We are declared righteous, not on the basis of a future process of gradual healing, but on the finished basis of the work of Christ. Now, this is, again, I want to be very clear. So this is, if I can put it as simply as I can, and as respectfully as I can, uh, this is kind of the, the, the core difference between Protestants and Catholics, and this is not meant as a criticism of Catholics. It's simply me articulating as best I can what we both believe. Uh, for, the, for the Roman Catholic... Um, Justification, being right with God, being declared righteous, comes at the end of a process. We, go, we grow. And how do we grow? Well, we, we, we avail ourselves of God's grace through the sacraments and confession and the, the life of the church. And we grow and we grow and we grow. And eventually we reach a place where we have, in fact, become righteous. And, and there's, there's 
good reasons for thinking that way. And I do think that eventually we all will be righteous. But in that scheme, that is the point of justification. It's the end of a process. And what the reformers said was, no, no, we've got this backwards. Justification comes at the start. It's the start of the process. We're declared righteous. We're declared right, forgiven, acquitted. And then that brings forth this growth and growth and growth. That isn't complete until Jesus returns or until we're in his presence. Well, how do we access this righteousness? How do we get the righteousness of Jesus? If we need it, how do we get it? And again, here's, here's the difference. The reformer said, it only comes by faith. And in saying that, it wasn't meant to downplay the importance of Christian obedience or other things that Christians should or should not do. It was simply saying, this righteousness that makes us acceptable to God only comes to us by faith in Jesus, by trust, by reliance upon him. It doesn't come to us through various activities or even institutions. By nature, the Reformers believed, and again, this is something that not all Protestants are in complete agreement on, but there's a sense that by nature, we're in a place we can't fix the problem. We're powerless and enslaved to sin. We can't initiate our salvation, and we can't contribute to it. Justification can only be by faith. And again, in the medieval church, faith was often seen as a virtue, being faithful, being loyal, being committed. For Luther, faith is simply taking hold of Christ. It's receiving what Christ has done and resting in that. Now, if you, again, if you dialogue with Catholics, and they have great responses, <laughs> in all fairness to them, one of the responses is, so we, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live, right? It's all grace, so what does it matter? But Luther was clear that faith goes on to produce good works. But our good works don't contribute to our salvation. They're an outflow of it. And to say that we contribute to our salvation is, I think, in at least some way to diminish what Christ did for us. The other thing for Luther, and I think it's important for us, is all of this then brought about an assurance of salvation. And again, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with Steve. We, we can't reduce the gospel to going to heaven when we die. But let's be honest, we, we want some assurance that we're going to be a participant in this new creation, in this new kingdom. Can we have assurance that we're part of that? And in the medieval church, you couldn't really have assurance because saying, I know I'm saved, is like saying, I know I'm a really, really good person. It's boasting. But for Luther, expressing assurance of salvation is boasting in Jesus and what he's done. So in the Protestant scheme, assurance of salvation is very important because it reflects upon the work of Jesus. We have assurance because of Jesus, not because of our own efforts or lack thereof. So just quickly to summarize what we've said so far. And this is the kind of great stuff that Reese and I will give you in adult Sunday school class this spring. 
one, justification is a legal act by which a believer is declared right, righteous. It's not a process. It's a declaration. It, uh, it involves a change in status, not nature. Now, sanctification is the term we use for that process by which God makes us more and more like Jesus. But we ha- we, we're careful not to confuse the two Secondly, the cause of justification is the external righteousness of Jesus. It's given or imputed to us. It's not imparted or poured or infused into us over time. Again, in the Catholic scheme, your participation in all these things is the way you access the grace you need to become righteous. Um. But in the Protestant Reformed, and when I say Reformed, I say that broadly, in the, the Reformation view is that justification is based on God giving us, imputing to us righteousness. Third, justification is by faith alone. We contribute nothing, we simply receive it. And fourth, because justification is an act of God and because it's based on the finished work of Christ, we can have assurance as we look to the future. Now, to circle back, if it, it, reformers have lots of warts and weaknesses and problems, and, and uh, we can all point their theological and exegetical weaknesses, but either they were right fundamentally on this or they were wrong fundamentally on this. And my challenge to you is if they were wrong fundamentally on this, why are we here? Let's go across the highway. Now, a couple final things. Justification and sanctification. There's a guy named Erasmus. He was a great humanist scholar, and he did one of the first and best, you know, put together one of the first good Greek New Testaments. And it really was influential in the Reformation as the Reformers tried to go back to the original Scriptures, tried to cut through centuries of of church tradition and teaching and get back to the scripture. And Erasmus was actually key in that, though that really wasn't his intention. And he objected to all of this talk about justification and said, Lutherans seek only two things, wealth and wives. To them, the gospel means the right to live as they please. In other words, all this talk of justification by faith alone is simply an excuse to live a sinful life. But, again, a response to this, while we're not justified by works, good deeds, good works, flow as, as a fruit of our faith. Saving faith will always evidence itself in love. And this love is not expressed in religious duties to earn God's favor, but in practical service of one's neighbor. We're freed from the burden of self-justification to serve one another in love. And this was a huge change with the Protestant Reformation. Before that, if you wanted to be spiritual, what did you do? You became a monk or a nun. You retreated from society. You you spent your time in confession and prayer and spiritual activities. But the reformers said, no, we don't, I mean, no, if if you love God, if you have faith and know you are his child, you can go out in the world and be a farmer and a butcher and a carpenter and do all these things to God's glory because you're not out there trying to earn God's favor. Instead, you are expressing the truth of being God's 
child. And this relationship between justification and sanctification, it is, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's something we'll talk about this, this spring in the adult Sunday school class. And uh, I actually think John Calvin was probably most helpful on this because he saw justification being made legally right with God, sanctification, growing in holiness. He saw them as really two sides of one coin that fell under the broader idea that we're united with Christ. And everything flows out of that union with Christ. Whether it's um, being justified legally before God or growing in holiness, it all flows out of our union with Christ by faith, and we experience it through the Holy Spirit. So does justification still matter? And I think it does. If it seems obvious to you, well, it's because we're children of the Reformation. It's because of people like Luther. But I think we have to be careful to presume on this legacy. Justification is a deeply personal doctrine. Every time I sin, I create a reason to doubt my standing with God. But day after day, the truth of justification speaks peace and comfort to my soul. If justification is a process of change, then every time I mess up, I have to say, oh man, I haven't gone very far. My future's in doubt. But if I'm made right with God through the finished work of Christ, then nothing can undo that. And I can have assurance even in the face of my struggles and failures. Not only is justification important doctrinally, but I think it's very practical because all human people are trying to justify and prove themselves in one way or another. Some people are trying to prove themselves to God. They're super religious. Others are trying to prove themselves to other people and themselves to establish identity and value. And all these attempts at self-justification are what bring about really the pain and brokenness, the strife in our world. And into this frenzy, Jesus says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. And so as Christians and as Protestants, at First Christian Church, we have good news for a busy and frantic culture. Proving yourself is just another term for justifying yourself, and we have good news of justification by grace through faith. You know, the problem, just like Luther experienced, if you're trying to prove yourself, you'll always be busy. You'll never get the job done. There's always more to do, and we see that in our world today. That's why it's so important that we recognize the most important thing has been done. The job is done. The task is complete. There's really nothing left for us to do other than to rest in it. And the thing about justification is it's not simply a doctrine that maybe divides churches, nor is it something we just preach to people outside the church, unbelievers. There's a real sense where we need to preach it to ourselves over and over and over. And really what we do when we come together as the church is to hear the good news of the gospel spoken to us again and again and again. Because we, we forget it. 
And if we don't forget it in our minds, we, we, we fail to live according to it during the week. And so we come week after week to hear the good news presented and, and portrayed before us each week. You know, when, when Steve preaches, it's not just a transfer of information. I mean, this morning I've been doing a lot of transfer of information. But preaching is not fundamentally about educating everyone. And if we think that, there's a danger. We're always going to be chasing the, the most exciting preacher or the most interesting subject. We come to the preaching of the word as those who need to hear the voice of Jesus, to encounter his presence, and to be encouraged by the gospel. Challenged, yes, but encouraged. So I uh, close here with some words of Luther, and, um, and then we'll, we'll pray. Luther says this, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive and to believe it, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> Luther's never one for understatement. So I leave you with a very simple message today. That, standing in the tradition of Protestantism, we believe that we are made right with God, we are justified before God by His grace through faith alone. And it's simple. But it's either it's true or it's not. And it's the kind of thing that there has to be clarity upon. May we know that truth, that clarity, and may we promote it in such a way that brings greater unity to the church of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we look to your word as our ultimate guide in our faith and our practice. But we also thank you, Father, for all the men and women who have gone before us as followers of Jesus. And the story from the New Testament to today is our story as well, and we're part of it. We're heirs of it, even if we're often unaware of all that's happened and why. Lord, I pray that those of us at First Christian Church would work for the unity of the church in Ray, Colorado. And we would find tangible ways to display that unity with other churches and even with our Catholic brothers and sisters. But Lord, there is a reason why there are different churches. There are deep, meaningful differences in doctrine and belief. And these aren't preferences. These aren't to each his own. 
These are our desperate attempt to know your truth. So please guide us, help us to be humble, but help us to hold desperately upon the truth of the gospel, justification by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.